greetings and welcome to episode 8 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is Mencius, perhaps the most famous of all the ancient philosophers of the Huaxia cultural sphere. Like Confucius, his name has already been Latinized so that we do not have to use the pronunciations, the original Chinese pronunciations that we're uh, stuck with for the other philosophers like Zhuangzi or Mozi or Xunzi or Han Feizi. All right, all of which you can see the pattern of how those names go, the end in and um, Confucius and Mencius are special because their names have been Latinized. They were Latinized by the Jesuits, who first visited China in the late 16th century and had influence throughout the 17th and 18th century during the Ming and Qing dynasty. They got to China and they were trying to identify who the most important philosophical strains could be attributed to in the Chinese intellectual tradition, uh, well actually throughout all of East Asia, and they very quickly uh, uh, focused on Kongzi and Mengzi, as they would have been known in Chinese, and said these people are so important and we can find analogs to other thinkers back in our own Greek and Roman classics that they should probably be Latinized so they can be easily um, referenced and pronounced by people back in the West. So we have Confucius and Mencius. Now my goal today is to try to explain why Mencius um, is deemed worthy of having his name Latinized. Okay, so Mencius flourishes in the 4th century BC. Okay, his official dates, if you go online and look him up or read a book or whatnot, it'll be 380 to 300, an 80-year-old man, um, but I don't usually put too much credence in exact dates when we're talking about this long ago in history. But Mencius views himself as the successor and revivalist of Confucian, of Confucian thought. Okay, remember, if you're trying to think of the, the chronology here, you get Confucius in the 6th and early 5th century BC. Okay, he's the first. Then you get Mozi, who is like a generation after Confucius, and he is railing against the Confucians. Mozi and his followers get, you know, sort of an, um, a lot of ascendancy in it for about a century during, during and after Mozi's life. And then you get Mencius and the Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi, who we talked about in the previous episode. Um, they're both going to flourish during the 4th century BC. They're a generation or two after Mozi. Okay, um, Mencius now is going to be responding to Mozi. Uh, he once famously said that the words of Mozi are on everyone's lips. Okay, if you were to go back in time to Mencius's lifetime, you would probably think, oh, it looks like Mozi and his doctrine of impartial caring, universal love, are probably going to win the day. And that's going to be the basis for how society in East Asia is organized. Um, you would not have probably thought that the Confucians were on their way up and they would eventually be picked as the official state orthodoxy. Um, Mencius sees a need to rescue Confucian ideas from the attacks of Mozi that had been going on for the past 100 years. Now, the Analects, as I've talked about many times, was sparse and vague. Okay? Uh, I don't want to you know, use this analogy too much, but again, a bunch of fortune cookie statements. Uh, you know, profound and wise, but very ambiguous, not a narrative prescription with an internally coherent story or logic on how to organize the world. All right, just, just some really interesting and profound ideas, sort of jumbled together. Okay, Mencius is going to fill in the gaps with commentary and narrative and logic to give Confucius flesh. All right, as I've said several times already, when people think of Confucius and Confucian ideas, they're actually thinking of Mencius's interpretation of Confucius, not the words of Confucius himself as recorded in the Analects. 
Okay. Um, now, Mencius is going to prove very popular with many different dynasties in East Asia, many different states, for the next 2,000 years, all right, 2,500 years or so after he's alive. All right, during the Song Dynasty, you know, roughly the late 900s until the middle to late 1200s, uh, Mencius will actually sort of be canonized, and his his interpretation of Confucius and his own works will become the basis of the civil service examination system. Okay, this is why he's going to attain such an enormous level, such a high level of brand name recognition and influence throughout the civil service bureaucracy. Okay, and then when the Jesuits come several hundred years later, they're going to easily identify that Mencius is the most important thinker, according to the Chinese themselves, the basis of their own exams, um, and then in turn, Mencius is building upon Confucius. Okay, um, Mencius's most common tactic is the emotionally logical anecdote. All right, I choose my words very carefully here because we've had people who use logic. Uh, I talked about how Moltze invented logic, or at least is the first person on record who we see using logic to prove a point, and that was a novelty in his day. We had not seen that yet. So Moltze has this pounding methodical logic to get you on to his side, to sway you to his point of view. Okay, but there's not a whole lot of emotion in, in Moltze. All right, the guy is very, very serious, and he's not trying to pull at your heartstrings. He just wants you to concede defeat to his logic. Mencius is going to use emotion, emotional anecdotes that nonetheless contain logic to win you over to his side. It's not just going to be a bunch of fun, uh, you know, um, touching stories. They will be touching stories. They will make you feel faith in humanity and that we can overcome, we can do it. But he's going to be trying to convince you of that through logic, the emotionally logical anecdote. All right. Like Moltze, and again, each of the philosophers, despite the fact that they all hate each other and they say the other person is completely wrong and I'm completely right, they all borrow from each other. They all build upon each other's rhetorical tactics and borrow many of the same themes and talk about many of the same things. They actually have a lot more in common than they have differences. Sometimes I, 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 I assign a paper or an exam in my classes in which I say, I actually want you to identify all the common themes among the ancient Huaxia philosophers. Um, it's a little counterintuitive. You want to emphasize the differences, but there's a lot that they all share in common. Like Moza, Mencius will champion the welfare of the common people, but he will take away Moza's discourse of impartial caring or universal love. Remember, Moza also had another innovation. He was one of the first to prop up the people, the masses, as the basis of political legitimacy, at least in theory. Okay? He said, you know, the ruler has to be good, what is good, how he treats the common people. That's how we define whether a ruler is good or not. Mencius is going to take this idea of the people as the basis of political legitimacy for the elites strip it of the new age hippie love stuff, none of this universal love crap, and merge it with the filial piety of Confucius's Analects. And like all the other philosophers, he's going to say that the basis of promotion is virtue, duh. 
But my virtue is gained by expressing proper filial concern for the welfare of the people, not the people of a different state, your own people. And conversely, for the people at the bottom of the social pyramid, uh, uh, you know, uh, filial piety towards your own rulers, your own neighbors and father, not those of another state or, you know, other people. Okay, so he asked the question, what should be the criteria for the promotion and demotion of officials in a mention world? He says, well, ideally, all the people of a state should be canvassed. They should be asked their opinion of the rulers. Wow, we got democracy here, right? 2,500 years ago, we have democracy in ancient East Asia. All the people of a state should be asked what their opinions are of the people who rule them. This will avoid corruption. Bad officials will be rooted out. Okay, now, I stress, this is in theory. Okay, because Mencius is also a fierce defender of hierarchy and inequality. In fact, one thing the Confucians will all share in common and Shunzu, in our next episode, will really go to town on this one, is they all believe very strongly in the virtues of inequality. Mencius is a fierce defender of the social hierarchy, as determined by his interpretation of virtue. He says, if you're a ruler, in theory, you have the greatest virtue of all. Okay? And you've demonstrated your virtue by being good to your own people and looking out for their welfare as if they were your own children. And they then, in turn, tender you respect as their own father. So he says, if the ruler does so much good in the world, if he's truly good and he truly looks out for the welfare of all of his people, then rulers deserve more in life than peasants. This is the origin of the Confucian idea that those who labor with their minds deserve more and should be treated better than those who labor with their hands. Mental labor is superior to physical labor. And so Mencius says, the greater your virtue and thus your position in society, the more authority you have, the greater your responsibilities are. So of course you should be rewarded more for saving the world and making it a better place than those who harvest an ear of corn. That's important. He's not looking down on that. He's not saying the farmer is doing useless work. That's good. You got to till the fields. Reap that corn. Or grain, millet, sorghum. (laughs) More appropriate to Northern East Asia. He says that's important. And it's good for the people, but only one or two people can eat that grain. But a ruler, his influence, his ability to do good, can influence so many more people than a simple peasant in the field. Therefore, he deserves the perks of being a king. So he says, a ruler can enjoy his pleasures, his earthly, fleshy pleasures, as long as he shares his pleasures with the people first to make it okay. Well, that sounds a little weird. What exactly does he mean by that? Here's an example. A king by the name of Xuan, King Xuan. Admits to Mencius that he has a weakness. He says, Mencius, I'm sorry, but I have to admit, I love women. God, I love women. Can't help it. Mencius says, so long, your liege, as all the men in your kingdom have their own women. In other words, wives, and you know, you haven't killed off the whole population, sent everyone off to war. You look out the welfare of your people and everyone's getting married. 
so long as all your men have women, then you, sir, can love your women, as many women as you want, without a shred of guilt, because you've done good for the people of your kingdom. So you deserve the perks and privileges of being at the top of society, because you do more good for this realm than anyone else can possibly do. You are the most virtuous person in the land. All right. Now, Mencius was also unique among all the Shur. Remember the Shur, the term for these gentlemen scholars uh, who become philosophers, have to work for a living and leverage their education and knowledge of history to come up with a new philosophy that forms the basis of political legitimacy and try to get a job in the court of one of the kings of the Warring States period. Mencius is unique among the Shur in being obsessed with human nature. Why? Why does he care so much about whether human nature is this or that or the other? Well, Mencius is living during the height of the so-called Warring States period, about a 200-year period from the 5th century to the 3rd century, in which you have you know, well over 100 states all throughout what is now northern, northern and central China, all fighting with each other, trying to become the one that absorbs all the others and restores grand unity, restores what the Zhou had once had 500 years earlier. Now, this is a multipolar world, as we talked about, not a unipolar world. They, 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 each state wants to become the person who recreates the unipolar world, but unfortunately it's still multipolar. And warfare, atrocities, and misery on a scale never before witnessed is occurring during the Warring States period. Each ruler is amassing more men, larger infantry, more scorched earth tactics. And it gets pretty, pretty bad. And Mencius is living during this time period, and his central concern becomes, understandably, are humans capable of redemption, or, as, or are we as incurably evil as we appear to be? 200 years earlier, Confucius only mentioned human nature once in the Analects, but Mencius talks about it all the time. And he becomes quite famous for his conclusion. Mencius says, yes, we are redeemable because our human nature is inherently good. Man is good. All right, man is good. Shunzu, who we'll talk about next, will say man is evil. And that pretty much seals his fate, his legacy. Uh, you know, uh, there, there, there's a reason for why people will have a vested interest in propping up and promoting a guy who says that humans are good than someone who says humans are evil. All right. Mencius will be the only sure to stress this idea that humans are inherently good and make it central to his platform. Okay. Others will say, like Shunzi, like Han Feitze, they're coming, don't worry, that man is evil and he needs to be aggressively transformed toward goodness. This makes the Mencius interpretation of Confucianism very attractive to state sponsorship. Okay, as we'll see, states have a vested interest in propagating a benevolent worldview of humankind, our place in the cosmos, and what the rulers think about the people in their kingdom. The emperor, the king, is not going to say, all you peasants in the field, all my subjects, you are evil. <laughs> and I'm going to transform you to good whether you like it or not. That doesn't go over very well. Much better to say, I believe that you guys are all good, but you've been led astray for whatever reason. You can't bring that goodness out all the time 
and I'm here. You know, I and my advisors and ministers and my government institutions, we will bring out the goodness in all of us. It's a much more attractive message for a state to put forth than you guys are evil and I'm going to change you. So Mencius continues this theme of humans as being good. But how come we're living in such an evil world? Well, let's get into this. What, Mencius asks, distinguishes us from the animals? His answer? Heaven, Tien Heaven, endowed us with a good nature. Only we fail to use our minds to cultivate it and bring it out and realize this good nature. Okay? And he gives several very famous examples, these emotionally logical anecdotes. I'm going to read, I'm not going to read, I'm going to, I'm going to um, summarize two of the most famous examples that Mencius puts forth to talk about, to illustrate his point, to prove by logic, the emotionally logical anecdote, that we are good. We are endowed with a good nature, but the reason the world is in such a fallen state is because we fail, for whatever reason, to bring it out. He says, I'm going to tell you about King Hui and the ox, I'm going to tell you about the child falling in the well. What is the story of King Hui and the ox? He says, there is a king, King Hui, obviously. He sees an ox being led down the street en route to being sacrificed for a ritual, a state ritual. It's very important to appease the ancestors, the gods, the nature gods, whatever. If you don't sacrifice that ox, bad things might come to your state, to your kingdom, to your legacy, to your dynasty, to your people, whatever. And the king's watching this ox go by and he says, I know in a minute that ox is going to have his throat slit, he's going to be dead. I can't bear to see this ox go like this towards its suffering and its fate. How horrible is this? So he says, please, 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 don't, don't kill the ox. I can't bear to see this happen, going being led to the slaughter. So substitute a sheep instead. Don't you love the example? <laughs> he can't bear to see the ox be killed, but a sheep, that's okay. Sheep don't have feelings. Take the sheep. So they take the sheep. Oh, it's gone. And then the people react and they say, our, our king is a cheapskate. He didn't do the ritual right. Because the ox is more valuable than the sheep. It costs more. And that's the real reason why he substituted it. He is a cheapskate. And now we're all going to suffer. Because the ancestors are going to see that a sheep is a lame sacrifice. And they demanded an ox. And King Hui says, oh no. Oh no. What am I going to do now? They think I'm a cheapskate. They think I'm niggardly. So Mencia says, the people mistakenly think that you're being stingy in substituting a sheep. But I know it is in fact due to your humanity. Your ren, R-E-N in modern day Chinese pronunciation and transcription. Your goodness, your, 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 your humanity. He says, the fact that you couldn't bear to see that ox be led off to the slaughter shows, proves, by logic, emotional logic, that you, King Hui, have a heaven-endowed good impulse, the humanity within you, deep within you. But it's misplaced, and it's lazy. Unfortunately, you only have it for animals, apparently. You don't feel this way towards the people of your kingdom, and you're too lazy. You don't act upon your goodness. Now, I, am your, as your advisor, am going to teach you how to act on your goodness, bring it out on a consistent basis, and apply it to humans, not animals. But the fact that you couldn't bear to see that animal killed shows that you have goodness within you. That man is good. But you're just lazy and misguided. 
and you couldn't bring it out of you. His, sec- his uh, second emotionally logical anecdote, the story of the child in the well. Uh, you, probably, you, might, you might even have heard this one before and not realize that it was, men- it was from Inches. Uh, a man's walking along the street. He looks over and sees a well and a little child playing around on the, around the top of the well. And the child's about to fall in the well. Certain death. He says the first uncontrollable impulse of the person on the road, the adult, is to run over and save that child. He says, you can't help that. Even if you are the most evil person on the face of this earth who does horrible things, the most hardened criminal. You know, maybe you, you, you killed your spouse and murdered your parents. You're so horrible. Even you. When you see that child about to fall into the well, you can't help yourself. Your first impulse will be to rush over and save that child. Now, he says, when you're, on, when you're running over towards the well to save that child, other considerations may come into your mind and change your calculations. You may suddenly realize, oh, this is that irritating little shit from across the street who wakes me up and cries all night long. Or this is a little punk who threw a clod of mud at me as I was walking down the street last week. I'm not saving him. Let him fall down. But, Mencius says, even if you come to that conclusion, and you, you know, as you're going over there, you might stop and say, okay, forget it. I'm not going to do it. He says, that doesn't matter. That doesn't change the emotionally powerful logic of this anecdote. He says, your first impulse, which you had no control over, was to save that child. And other petty, worldly grievances may come into play in the process of getting closer and actually doing the action, the good action. And maybe you'll end up doing evil. You won't do good because of other baser instincts. And because you're lazy and you let your baser instincts take over from you. That does not change the fact that your first impulse was to do good. And that proves, through the emotionally logical anecdote, that proves that you're good. There is an important distinction, Mencia says, between not doing good and incapable of doing good. And he says, many of us do not do good, but that does not mean we are incapable of doing good. Indeed, we are meant to do good, but our laziness, our pettiness prevents us from doing it. So, he has proven to you, through logic, emotionally logical anecdotes, Mencius has proven to you that heaven gave us good natures. So, why don't we put them into practice? Laziness and weakness. So, this is Mencius's prescription for what he's going to offer if you listen to him and hire him as your advisor. He says, I'm going to teach you how to bring the goodness out of you. Some scholars have come up with the term command moralism. He's going to command it. I prefer Nike's slogan, just do it. That's what Mencius basically says. He says, just do it. You can't do it because you're lazy and you got a bunch of excuses. But the goodness is there. You just got to try harder. Oh, you can't, you know, you can't do it yourself. That's what you hire me for. I'm going to show you how to do good. Okay, this, this, this is attractive to someone who is ruling over a state, a king or an emperor. Okay, because there's always a bunch of crap going on in the world. You're never able to achieve the ideals that you set out for yourself. You have to make constant compromises. You're in going to battle all the time. 
All right, petty squabbles and grievances in court. The life you live never lives up to the ideal of what you hope for. And Mencius is going to say, it's not your fault. You are good. You aren't the evil person that you've come to be. And all you need is a life coach like me to come in and teach you how to bring that goodness out of you. So hire me. Mencius is like the yoga teacher or the guru that gets hired for a Silicon Valley, <laughs> you know, tycoon or something, you know, something like that. All right. He is in the end. Remember, all the sure are looking for jobs. All the sure, except for the Taoists, are looking for jobs. And so Mencius is trying to appeal to a ruler. But he's got a subversive side as well. It's not all sucking up to the man. Mencius has a subversive side. He has to, or else he's not going to gain the respect of the people who actually populate the official bureaucracy. It's not just the king at the top. There's hundreds and thousands of civil servants who are going to work in any state. Um, And they are going to look for, in a philosophy, they're going to look for not only something that props up the status quo and makes it look really good and benevolent, and he faces its more nasty side, they're also going to want to find in that philosophy something that allows them to subvert the status quo if it does not live up to the ideal, if it really is evil and has lost its way, and you're disillusioned. What in this philosophy will subtly, carefully, not too bluntly, or else you're going to get your head cut off, what will subtly allow me to to critique the status quo in respectable form that the king has to listen to? All right. So, Mencius then riffs upon Confucius's idea about the rectification of names in the current day Chinese pronunciation, Zhengming. Remember, Confucius touched on this a little bit, but again, fortune cookie stuff, all right? Mencius is going to flesh it out. What was the rectification of names all about? That for society to be truly harmonious, people have to, tr- have to actually embody their station in life. A son must truly be a son to fulfill his duties and make his family harmonious. Just like a father has to be a father, a king, a king. And when they don't act in the kingly way, they're not a king. When a son doesn't act in a sonly way, he's no longer a son. And we need to make him be a son and truly embody his station in life. That was, this was sort of one of the ideas that led Moltze to criticize the Confucians as fatalistic, saying that, you know, they're fatalists. They say you can't move in society. Whatever you are, you have to try to embody that. There's no social mobility. Of course, the Confucians don't agree with that. They say, no, Moltze is mischaracterizing us. But nonetheless, you can see how the criticism can come out. So he takes the rectification of names and he applies this to the highest levels of the ruling elite. Mencius asks the question, how do we define a benevolent and virtuous king? Well, how he treats the people, right? He has to provide his people with food, clothing, low taxes, light penalties, and shelter. He can't lead, he can't create the conditions that stimulate and give rise to crime and then punish them for it. He says, in an, in an analogy that has uh, echoes in our own day and time with gun debates, he says that's like blaming homicide on the weapon, not the person who wielded that weapon. He says, quote, when men die from starvation, from famine, you say to the king, it is not I, it is the weather's fault. How is this different, Mencius responds, from running them through with a spear and saying, it was not I, it was the spear's fault. Okay, Mencius is a Republican. 
<laughs> All right? Guns don't kill people. Humans kill people. Spears don't kill people. Their king kills people with his policies and his actions. So, let's take this logic a little bit further. Can a king be justifiably deposed? Absolutely. Because the rectification of names. A king must be a king to be considered a king and viewed as a king by his subjects. If he acts in an unkingly way, he can be overthrown. Well, who defines the kingly way? The sure. Mencius. Works out well for him, doesn't it? Works out well for the ruling elites, the officials, the lower middle bureaucracy, who actually wields an enormous amount of influence in whether the king stays in power or not. So, Mencius says, failure to be a good king justifies overthrow of that king. And then he gives, you know, emotionally logical example to support this. He gives many examples of people in other professions and says, if they're incompetent, what would you do with these people? He talks about a carpenter. If you have a carpenter and he can't, you know, create a good chair or a good piece of furniture, what would you do with a carpenter? And the king says, I'd fire him. If you had a miller who couldn't, uh, what the hell does a miller do? Couldn't mill. <laughs> Uh, what would you do with him? You'd fire him. If you had a chef who made disgusting food, what would you do with the chef? King says, I'd fire him. So then he says, he's got, he's got his Molza logic here, right? And he, then he asked the king, so what would happen to a king whose people starve? Who's not doing his, fulfilling his kingly duties? And the king is silent. He's been trapped by logic emotionally logical anecdote because he realizes that the answer to that question is that the king, just like the carpenter, the miller, and the chef before him, should also be fired. One of Mencius's most famous lines in supporting this point comes when he is asked if he had ever heard of the execution of a king of the Zhou dynasty. And he says, I have heard of the execution of outcast Zhou. I have not heard of the execution of a ruling Lord Joe. Is he splitting hairs? No. His point here is that this king is no longer a king if he's overthrown by his people. He clearly wasn't virtuous anymore. Therefore, he doesn't deserve the title king anymore. So, no, I've never heard of the overthrow of King Joe or whatever the king's name is. I've only heard of the overthrow of outcast because that's what he becomes when he acts like an outcast. He's no longer a king. Of course, like Malta, Mencius still gives a lot of plenty of room and rhetorical space for a ruler to wage war. If you hire Mencius, he's not going to say no war. That's not that's not benevolent. It's not in the interest of the people or anything like that. Let me read a passage for you. A little bit lengthy here. But it's important to illustrate the ways in which war is continually justified in a benevolent way. It says, quote, The armies of Qi attacked Yen. And someone said to Mencius, Is it true you urged Qi to attack Yen? Never, said Mencius. Shantong asked whether Yen ought to be attacked, and I said yes in response to his question, whether Yen ought to be attacked. Then they went off and attacked Yen. But if he had asked me who should attack Yen, I would have replied, he who acts as an agent of heaven should attack Yen. 
Let's say there were a murderer here, and someone asked, should this man be executed? I would say yes. If he asked, who should execute him? I would reply, the minister of the guards should execute him. As it is, this is simply one yen attacking another yen. Why would I ever urge such a thing? So what's he saying here? He's saying that the the state, yen, ought to be attacked, but he's leaving the agent out of it. There's no subject. Who should attack yen? And he's saying, you misinterpreted what I said. The state of yen was immoral. They weren't acting like a kingly state, and so therefore it should be attacked, i.e. punished. But I never said that the state of qi should attack yen. I said that an agent of heaven, the all-knowing heaven, the supernatural power, should attack yen. So when it's sanctioned by heaven, Malta did the exact same thing, remember this? When it's sanctioned by heaven, then the immoral state can be attacked. And of course, who decides what heaven's intentions are? Mencius, Malta, sure. <laughs> Don't you love it? Mencius adds one more thing here. Each one, of, each one of these philosophers wants to be a little bit distinctive in their criteria for how to attack someone else. Mencius, with his emphasis on the people as the basis of political legitimacy, he's going to go one step further and say that in addition to the signs of heaven's sanction, that you are the agent of heaven to attack this immoral state, you must also have evidence that the people of the state to be attacked are also fed up with their ruler and want him gone. He's trying to put an additional check and balance here. It's not just heaven, my my capricious interpretation of what I think heaven's signs are. We also have to have signs that the people of that state want their ruler overthrown. He says, quote, if the people of Yen will be pleased by your annexation, then do it. Okay. Now, <laughs> you have the exact same problem here, though. He's added an, an, another layer of, uh, of uh, checks and balances, but he's still the person who interprets it. Who interprets whether the people of Yen are dissatisfied with their ruler? Mencius does. He's the one who's going to say, oh, they're protesting, oh, they're starving, whatever. Okay. Now, even Mencius knew that his checks and balances were pretty feeble. And if a king was so inclined, they could easily go to war and use Mencius' justifications for it. At one point, he even admits that I was duped by one of these kings to wage a quote-unquote legitimate war. He got me to interpret the signs of heaven in his favor, to say that these people of the other state he wanted to attack were unhappy with their ruler, and then he still went and waged an illegitimate war that should not have happened and was an evil war. And he did it in my name. Mencius feels all dirty here and violated. But all the sure are the same. They all have these linguistic and rhetorical hula hoops that allow the rulers to do what they were going to do anyways, but make it look good. Now, Mencius' takeaway message to his employer, to the king, is the power of gentlemanly transformation. Remember, Confucius talked about transformation. Shunz is going to talk about transformation. Transformation is actually a central concept in the Confucian ideology. Moltz's criticism about fatalism notwithstanding, uh, there is this idea that people, anyone can be transformed into a superhuman gentleman. He says that ideally, the true king shouldn't have to prepare for war at all. This is how he sort of saves himself and makes it, you know, kind of, uh, you know, washes off the taint of being used by a king for an immoral war that he justified. 
He says that the true king should never have to go to war. And he says as follows, quote, Mencius says, One may reign as a true king from a territory as small as 100 li square. If your majesty would only govern the people by means of policies that accord with humanity, being sparing in punishments, keeping taxes light, encouraging the people to plow deep and weed readily, then the young would have leisure to cultivate the virtues of filiality, deference towards elders, loyalty, faithfulness. At home, they would serve their parents and elder brothers. Abroad, they would serve their elders and superiors. Such people could beat back the armor and swords of Qin and Chu armed with nothing but pikes. Other rulers commandeer the labor of the summer fieldwork so that the people have no way to do their plowing and weeding. Their parents freeze and starve while brothers, wives, and children are forced to scatter. If your majesty were to campaign against such rulers, what enemies could be your match? Thus it is said that the man of humanity has no enemies. May your majesty never doubt it. Mencius is saying that the truly benevolent king, who is truly a king, his goodness will be so readily recognized that his influence will radiate throughout the land like wind over the barley. That was Confucius's metaphor. That's the power of the gentleman. It's a superhuman power. And that's what a king should aspire to, Mencius says, to be this super gentleman whose goodness radiates throughout the land and everyone recognizes that you are the true king. And therefore, when someone goes to battle against you or you go to battle against someone else, you don't need weapons because the people will rise up in every other state and overthrow their rulers and embrace you as you come in. Yeah, good luck with that. All right, you know that's not going to work. But nonetheless, this is how Mencius is salvaging his own philosophy in the face of the realization that he too can be manipulated into justifying immoral war. Ideally, he says, you know what? We should never actually have war in the first place. If you truly embody my five-step program, you'll never even go to war, and yet you'll still be the king. You'll still be the last one standing. Now, Mencius will be canonized by the Han Dynasty. Oh, not the Han Dynasty so much. Uh, Confucianism, the Confucian ideologies collectively, will be embraced by the Han Empire, which will come into power about 200 BC and last for 400 years. All right, They will institutionalize Confucian ideology generally, have libraries and uh, scholarly communities, pay, you know, salaries paid for by the state, copying programs in which Confucian books, all the Confucian thinkers are copied and whatnot and propagated. Um... You know, you have to think about why the Menchin interpretation of Confucius proves so useful to a state. And I, I've already suggested what I think is the answer. Um, it is the most benign yet benevolent view of humankind that any of the philosophers put forth. Uh, but it also provides many ways for the rulers of the state to act in immoral ways, yet portray them as moral ways. It provides a prescription, a program for how all of human society should interact with one another to create a harmonious society, but it also reaffirms the status quo. It reaffirms inequality and the existing hierarchy. All these things are very beneficial, are very attractive to those who have power and wealth and don't want to lose it, and yet want to think of themselves in the most attractive terms possible. They don't want to think of themselves as bad people. They want to think of themselves as good people. And Mencius allows them to believe that. Now, Confucian ideas will become state orthodoxy during the Han Dynasty. Mencius 
as the most preeminent thinker among all the Confucians, that won't happen until later. That won't happen until, you know, 1100 AD or so during the Song Dynasty. That's when Mencius will sort of rise to the top among all the others. And the Song Dynasty will decide that it's Mencius's writings and his interpretation of the Confucian classics. That's what will become the basis of our civil service examination system. And it's not just, you know, it's, all, it's also Mencius's commentary on the Confucian classics. What he actually says, you know, he'll have a passage from the Book of Odes or the Book of Rites or whatever it is. And he'll say, this is how this, this is what this passage means. I'm telling you what this passage means. It may be very ambiguous. It may have many different meanings originally, but Mencius is saying this passage means this. His commentary, his interpretation goes in to the civil service examination system. Students will have to study what he says the classics mean. All right, his unique mention gloss on both the Analects and all the other Confucian classics. And by the time the Jesuits, the European uh, priests, get to China, they see that Mencius has conquered the intellectual institutions of Chinese empires and all of East Asia, Korea, Japan anywhere where Huaxia culture spreads and is readapted. So, Mencius restores the primacy of Confucianism over Mohism. He crafts an attractive narrative of political legitimacy for aspiring warring states kings that is then proven, quote-unquote proven, through logic and lingers in the brain, tugs at the heartstrings through emotional vignettes. And yet, Despite Mencius's preeminent fame, he wasn't the most accomplished of the Confucian thinkers, or the most systematic, or the most thorough. Nor, I would argue, were his ideas the ones that actually made the leap into real government policy on the ground. He just provides the benign public discourse of the ruling elites, and the means for those ruling officials to subvert the king or the emperor if they think he's being immoral. But for the philosopher who wielded the greatest influence without getting any credit for it, please join me next time for Xunzi, the most awesome Confucian. (laughs) 